Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Heart Podcast. Our guest today is Mark Holcomb from Periphery and Haunted Shores. So, Mark Holcomb, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. It's a pleasure. Do you think, say that history went a little different and Chimp Spanner came out five years later, but the scene had already started to establish itself. So, like, everything else proceeded as we know it, except for whatever, re- there was some other band instead of Chimp Spanner that was one of the first, right? So, Chimp Spanner comes five years later, more in, like, the textures, counterparts, like, architects era what that music has going for it is this like uh this sense of melody that i don't think any of the bands that we've just mentioned have you know like i I always looked at it as like yeah this like crazy uh fusion you know mashuga-esque kind of thing but it had this over the top almost like dream theater sense of melody but like as far as i know i don't think paul even liked dream theater and that's what always struck me as strange Cause it's so theatric and like over the top melodic in a way that uh, still no one does. Like no one does this kind of thing. And I think if that record came out now, it would just be a, like people would take serious notice of it, you know? And it's, it's such a crime that uh, a lot of people don't, I mean, shit, I even, you know, just kind of glossed over his name when mentioning, you know, the, the, the founding bands that did it. So it, it's truly, I think it's a little criminal that people don't give him his due credit. It's weird how that works, man. I've thought about this a lot. The the whole being ahead of your time thing is uh, you know, it's a blessing and a curse cuz it's a it's it's cool in that uh you get the respect of the people who know and uh it's kind of like this elite status, I guess, but it sucks because you don't really get the fruits of your labor or the fruits of your innovation. A bunch of other people do. <laughs> right. Right. There's this um, Christian band from Norway called Extal. Yes. They're awesome. And I, I, I always wonder why that band never got pushed more, never got thrusted into your face. Like when you're talking about like bands that pushed boundaries and did things that just not really any other band did. Um, just like really thrashy, insanely technical, using a lot of huge chords that like you hear all over, like whatever you want to call it, the gent style or whatever, progressive style that everybody's doing now. Nobody mentions that band. And I've always sort of like, I've always sort of um, paraded that band as being a big, big influence, but uh, I feel like they're, they're in that conversation as well. Like we need to talk about that band more. I think that there is the X factor, the X factor being the collective subconscious, basically of the audience and uh, whether or not the audience is ready for it or ready for that. It's kind of like uh, two people dating, right? Like it could be like two people that are awesome, conventionally attractive, have like everything going for them, but they meet up and um, it's not a thing, no chemistry. And I almost feel like the relationship between bands and an audience are kind of like that. So there can be situations where, the band is awesome. The they they have ever you could check off the boxes for everything. Like they're innovative, they're catchy, they're technical, they're sick. Like everything you could want, they do that. But for some reason, the chemistry with like the with like the mass audience in that genre is just not there. Maybe they're too early for the audience to be ready. Maybe they just are a slightly different flavor who knows but i feel like there's this x factor that and that's kind of what it almost comes down to because that's the only thing i can think of that explains it because there's 
you know, we've seen bands that aren't as good as other bands get huge. We've seen bands that are amazing not get huge. And I really think it comes down to is the audience ready and willing or not? And if they are, wonderful, but you can't predict it or manufacture it. It also begs this unpleasant question like that I don't like to ask. It's like, it's kind of it kind of feels lame to even bring up. It has to do with the way you're perceived visually or how relatable you are or you know how well you push yourself uh, publicly or advertise yourself. There's also this like this way of how you present not just the music, but the idea of your music, who you are, who performs it. Like it's, I mean, that then, then you start talking about social media and, and how, how, why does that feel lame to you out of curiosity? Cause it, it, it feels very performative uh, and, and not at all indicative of, of who you are as a person or musician. It's kind of like this facade you're, uh, you're creating synthetically uh, to, to, to help yourself as a band of business. I mean, it's a, it's a reality, uh, right now. Isn't it more like a vehicle for which to transport your art to the public basically? Yeah. But, but done, done in a way that I, I don't think I've ever been super comfortable with, even though I play the game, like I'm fully aware that I play the game because I know it's kind of what you have to do. I mean, John knows this full and well too. This is not why you got into it, but you do it because you realize it's like, Oh, I kind of have to, if I want to make music a career in this fashion at this stage in my life and in the industry's climate. Mark, how old are you? I'm 13 years old. No, I'm uh, 37. <laughs> 37. Okay. Uh, so, all right. So we're in the same age group. So it's weird to me too. However, think about it from the perspective of someone who's 18 right now, who grew up in this era, who only knows it like this. Does it seem weird to them? No, because that that's all they know. I mean, they you're talking, you know, yeah, if you're talking about an 18-year-old or someone younger, or hell, someone in their mid-20s, like they grew up with a phone in their hand, basically. And they discover, like, you know, the era that John just referred to. Like, like I bought, I bought In the Night Side Eclipse by Emperor. Just listening to it, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And all I knew about Emperor was that they wore makeup in their album photos and there was whispers that their drummer killed a guy and that they burned churches and stuff like that. And that was all I yeah, knew. Yeah, some church got burned down. <laughs> yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rumor has it. Um, and uh, and that's all I knew. I didn't have a choice. Like there, there was no, like I could have asked Jeeves maybe, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I could have asked him or her, I don't know, gender neutral. I don't know what Jeeves was. Um, but, uh, you know, that's all I knew. And now... Jeeves was an entity. Jeeves was an entity. Jeeves was an idea, man. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> um, now it's like impossible to have that level of mystery. And it's something I certainly appreciate looking back on things. But now it's just, it's it's impossible. You have to like flesh out the rest of these things about how you're perceived. There's, there's no sort of veil or shroud you can put over yourself as a musician. How long has it taken you to, I mean, you're saying you don't like it, but obviously you've had to go along. Like you said, how long did it take before you were like, I don't want to say resigned because that's a bad, that's a bad word. Cause like, this is a cool ass career. 
<laughs> but how long before you accepted it, I guess? Pretty early on, because I saw that people were getting results that way. And sort of like m- music sort of reigns completely in my life. And the idea of pursuing music as a career, even when, even before it became a reality, it always reigned supreme over everything. I was like, well, I got to try and do whatever I can to make this work. Even if it's just a side thing that brings me a couple bucks in royalties every quarter, like I got to try it because it's all I know how to do. And then when I saw that that's what people were doing in the, in the early social media days, I was like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll play the game. I'll do it. I'll, I'll put my music out for free on MySpace back when Haunted Shores was just a, you know, a band project, you know, whatever it was on, on MySpace. And then, you know, when I eventually joined Periphery, I saw that part of Periphery's sort of formula was for success in the beginning was having that sort of transparent um, barrier between, between itself and its fans. So I, I learned pretty early on, to be honest. In your mind, did you have any sort of plan B? Like you just said, you uh, you didn't know how to do anything else. So is it one of those things where you just didn't see anything else going down? You're going to do whatever the fuck it took to make this thing work out. Um, not not quite. I, I as John knows, actually, I was still working this job when I met uh, when I met you. Uh, I, I worked for the Peace Corps. Uh, for the Peace Corps headquarters in in downtown Washington D.C. as a uh, as an IT guy, so I was in IT for let's see from 2006 to 2011, and that was my career. I had a comfortable living. Uh, I had a future. I had stability. I had a paycheck. Yeah, I had a paycheck. Had a you know social circle and something that I you know for all intents and purposes could have relied on for for years. Uh, and at, while I was doing that, I lived and breathed music on the side. Uh, and you know, it was always one of those things where I'm probably not going to do anything with music, but I'm going to keep doing it on the side because that's literally all I gave a shit about. You know, uh, it was my one true passion and hobby, you know, besides what I was doing professionally. So yeah, I never had, never had a real, like, you know, I'm going to do this or I'm going to die kind of thing. It was always just like, as long as I'm not working, doing my job, I'm going to keep doing music because it helps me therapeutically. You know, I, I, I need it to, to sort of get by and be myself, you know? So uh, I guess doing the job, you weren't getting that sort of outlet. It was just a means for survival. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I wasn't getting that. No, like n- nothing, nothing like music. I'm, I'm sure, you know, listeners out there can relate. It, it's sort of this, what music gives you, what creating music gives you is this sort of untouchable kind of like sense of purpose, you know? So no, not even close. Did you find the job soul crushing or were you cool with it? It just didn't, it just didn't scratch that itch, but you were fine. To be honest, maybe a lot of people out there that they expect me to say, ah, it sucked, man. Like I wanted to die every day. It was awesome. Like I, I liked having a cubicle. Like I liked getting my coffee at the same time in the morning, going to the same shop, like seeing the same people, having a sense of camaraderie, like feeling connection with people was something that I think I lacked a lot in my teenage years and in my twenties. And so when I had that at a stable career, it felt like a certain part of what I was lacking for years before was, was all of a sudden remedied, 
And I, I really liked it. And, and I do sometimes, you know, like I look back and I'm like, wow, that, that career was so stable. I'm, I'm infinitely happier now to a level that I can't even describe to you. But, uh, but I did like that part of it quite a bit. It sounds to me like you really like stability and routine. Yeah, I do. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because we've toured so much over the past 10 years and we've, we've, we've been everywhere. We've, we've done a lot of things that have required us to be uprooted from our creature comforts, you know, from our, from our homes and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, when I'm home, I'm home, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm very much a creature of habit for sure. So does the touring lifestyle mess with that part of you or do you just adapt to it when you're there? When you're there, you shut that switch off basically and because you know you're not going to get it or how, how, how do you reconcile the, that side of yourself with the part of music that's the exact opposite, that's basically chaos? Well, my, my method has been trying to make organization out of that chaos. Like when tours go well, and you're like, and you're mentally well on tour and you're physically well on tour. There's always, at least for me, historically, there's always been a high degree of routine. You know, you wake up at the same time, you try and exercise every day, you try and not eat like a total dickhead. Uh, you, you, you try and practice regularly, be socially healthy. Meditating is, is one thing that I've actually never done on tour. But over the past year, I've, I've done it every day, nearly for an entire year. Um, I want to start putting that into my routine every day on tour. Uh, it's, it's those kinds of things. It's, it's trying your best to throw some element, even if it's a tiny bit of, a, of organization and schedule and routine to this highly unpredictable wild animal, you know, that is touring. It also has to do with like just experience and, and, and doing these kinds of things where there's so many moving pieces and so many other people in that environment makes it all so challenging to to come to grips with and for the first couple of years that we were doing this on a on a large you know scale there were growing pains there was you know how do we get along with one another you know sleeping a foot away um from from one another how do we stop let's let's maybe stop getting carl's jr at three in the morning like let's maybe try and get better sleep let's maybe you know practice uh for a couple hours a day uh, there, it's just a it's a laundry list of things that you just learn through experience uh at, at first it's a it's very similar to this roller coaster ride you know positive emotions negative emotions every day is just like swinging um violently back and forth only when you you know apply some level of stability to it do you start to do it healthily and it also has to do with finding the right people when our crew stabilized when we found our crew our family, that's when we all started to look at it as more of this like, okay, it's work. Let's clock in the beginning of the tour and clock out. You know, it's a it's a job, not a roller coaster ride. A job, not a roller coaster ride. That's a I think that that's the goal. No, or maybe the goal or maybe like uh the pinnacle of being able to sustain a band is if you can get it to that point. Yeah. And the roller coaster ride just uh there's, I feel like there's only so long that a band can last if that's how it operates. Like there's only there. It's like there's a finite amount of time that things can possibly go on unless they do everything possible to make it more job like and order like, in my opinion. 
You know, what you just said makes me think of, so my perception of tour before I actually started doing it was I thought it was going to be like the Pantera home videos. Oh yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) But then you look at, you know, I love Pantera. Like they're, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. Top three. How sustainable was that for them? You know, like they, they burnt out far quicker than even their heroes, you know, like they idolized Kiss and Van Halen and Van Halen's still going. Kiss is still going. They're all alive and they're still kicking. And, you know, sad to say that, that, that Pantera sort of fell by the wayside. I, I'm not attributing it to, to maybe that they had a nonstop roller coaster ride their entire career, but it does make you think. And also, let's not forget that they were pulling it off when there were millions of dollars coming in, mm. which probably allowed it to sustain longer than it could, like at, say, modern metal band income levels. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I think the money in those days facilitated, or at least prolonged, that type of stuff. Right. Where nowadays, I don't think so. I don't think there's enough money. And I don't think that people will put up with it. Right, right. Like you don't hear of like, you don't hear of Vale of Meyer animals as leaders flying out five crates of uh, Jack Daniels to begin a European tour, you know? No, you don't. (laughs) 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 You're right. I did hear about that kind of stuff. Because there was the money for it. They had, they had this like, oh yeah, you know what? We got enough money to, 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 to get Cuervo to last us this entire album cycle. So let's just do it. (laughs) that type of discipline that you seem to want in your life seems like discipline and routine order. Would you say that that's been integral in your advancement as a guitarist? Like, has it allowed you to kind of achieve the level that you've achieved? Does it play in? Yeah. I I don't know. Cause to me, I'm still not anywhere near like comfortable I know nobody ever is, but like, still you have, you've gotten somewhere with it, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, it's your job in a technical genre that has good players. So you're doing something right. Yeah. It, it, it definitely feels helpful and conducive to the life that I'm living and and the life that I want. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say it's definitely the key to sustainability, you know, and that's really all I want when you ask me ultimately, you know, if you want to ask me the the high school yearbook question, like what do I want to be doing in in twenty years? Uh, I would like to be doing some semblance of the same thing. You know, I want to be putting out music. I want to be touring, maybe way less uh, when I'm that old. Uh, releasing music, putting out music on our record label. I want to be doing a lot of these kinds of things. And for me, the key to that is treating it as a discipline and uh, and and using those methods to sort of drive everything that I'm doing. Can you talk a little bit about how that would translate like on a day-to-day level? Like say just with guitar playing, for instance, like say your typical week in quarantine or whatever. We can just talk about the past six months or something, but like just say your typical day, how does guitar play into it? Like where is guitar? How much guitar? How do you approach it? Is it, do you approach it the same way, like you said, like you like going to the same coffee shop, same crew, same cubicle? Do you approach it the same way, like same approach every day, like or some sort of a routine with your playing, et cetera? Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because my approach 
to guitar and my relationship on an everyday basis with guitar has changed over the past year. And I don't think it has everything to do with coronavirus either or lockdown or quarantine or whatever. But now it's, you know, I'll get up, I'll have breakfast with my wife, I have coffee. Uh, I'll come upstairs and I'll, I'll get recording. You know, I'll, I'll just start jamming around in ideas. And my, my early afternoon, late morning routine is just drafting ideas, programming drums, trying out just whatever kind of random idea I can come up with and then having lunch around one or two in the afternoon and then kind of trying to get back to it. So it's, it's been, this year has been really heavy on that, on that side of things, just uh, trying to make writing and creativity this routine, as opposed to just going to the guitar when I feel inspired, which is historically what I've always done. I never, I was never one to sit there and play guitar eight hours a day. I'd always sort of pick up a guitar when I felt like picking it up. But now I'm taking this approach, curious to see what the results are. As I finish this Haunted Shores record I'm working on, and you know, as we start to get into more new periphery, probably next year, what the what the product of that is. But uh, I, I've become very comfortable with this uh, with this idea of looking at guitar playing and creativity as a as a job I show up to every day. Man, I don't remember if it was Stephen King. It was some great author. I think it was Stephen King who said this. It was something about how if you wait for inspiration, you're gonna be waiting for. A really long time a, a writer's job is to write so he sits down the same time every day and he writes and sometimes he gets five words out sometimes he gets five pages out but he still sits his ass down and he writes and i've kind of heard that sentiment echoed across so many prolific people like you know like i had mick gordon on the urm podcast recently and talked about the exact same thing like he said, I remember his line, he said, amateurs wait for inspiration, professionals get it done. And I've just heard this over and over and over, the idea that yes, inspiration's nice, but can't wait around for it, just sit down and write. And then if you're lucky, the inspiration will show up, but it'll actually show up more often if you just sit down and write more often and make it a job. And like, I, I couldn't agree more that there is that, there is that likelihood of sitting down and having five words come out or you sit down and this happened to me the other day where I sit down and I, and I program a drum beat just to see where it goes. And I try tracking riffs over it and I spend a couple hours on it and I take a listen back and I'm like, oh my God, this is awful. Like this is bad, <laughs> you know? Well, you do run that risk. Yeah, there is that risk. But then it's also a, a sort of healthy mechanism in life to be able to deal with those moments uh, of like, okay, I'm going to reflect on this and bounce back from it and not let it, not let it define me, you know, not let it be like, oh, you know what? I suck or what's wrong with me? You know, I mean, I know you guys know about this feeling too. It's not judging yourself off of your lowest lows. Uh, it's just making making it a routine to bounce back from failure, what you deem as failure in that moment, even though it's not necessarily as drastic as what you think it is. It's just one bad day. Yeah, and there, that's where you know this idea of resilience comes in. It's just not feeling thwarted or feeling um, you know like it's why why is the universe shitting on me or you know this kind of sky is falling kind of feeling when uh, when things aren't going well uh, with creativity. It's a, it's a temperamental thing. Do you get tunnel vision? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, only when things are going well. Like when, 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 when I know, like I'm chasing a thread creatively in a song with a section, whatever, that's when I sort of like 
lose sight. Like I forget to eat or something, you know, or I forget to do, do X and Y in life. Yeah. That that's when I get super tunnel vision. Yeah. When, when things are not going well, I'm very scatterbrained and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I wonder how the Cubs are doing right now. I'll start looking at, you know, sports shit. <laughs> you know? So how do you rein it in? That's man. I, I don't actually have a practice in place for that. It's funny enough. Uh, there's got to be some way that you do it. Maybe, maybe stepping back from it. Um, I haven't tried meditating on it. Um, not, not, not to harp again on, on, on meditation, but that's, that's been. Meditation's great. Have you tried it? You, you, you do it? Yes, sir. Mindfulness meditation. I started last year, been doing it through this year. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'll typically go for a 10 to 15 minute session. Same here. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. So, yeah. Sometimes five. Sometimes like, five. That works. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's not this, it's not this like, it's not like exercise in my, that lasts a long time. It's like literally five to 15 minutes. Right. I find that it's different than for me than going for a walk in that I feel like when I'm meditating, I'm actually working on something Mm -hmm. like I'm working on making my mind stronger so that I am not my emotions basically like separate. So I can separate the two, like you said, to get to a more, neutral starting point to me that feels like i'm doing work in a good way but it doesn't feel the same as if i'm going for a walk and i'm just in my head thinking that could be meditative and good things come from that but when i'm sitting down and doing mindfulness meditation like i feel like i'm doing actual outcome oriented work strangely enough yeah 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 yeah, I, I I can get behind that for sure. It's def it definitely reaches a, a much higher level than something like going for a walk or or, or doing something that relaxes you. Because the point is not to relax you. The point is to like the point isn't to fall asleep or to feel like oh I'm so relaxed. Yeah, you're you're like strengthening your mind mm-hmm. by doing it. Right. It's like doing push ups for your for your mind basically. I feel like mind push ups. It is brain squats. <laughs> for his squats like i i feel like um that's why i can only take like 10 minutes of it or something some days five some 15 is because it's hard it's hard to do at first especially at first right do you use an app yes i i i did the sam harris app for a while mm-hmm. uh, the mindfulness app and now now i'll just go on youtube and i'll find whatever random like if, if i've had a day where i have trouble focusing on positive energy or I have a day where I notice that I'm struggling with anxiety or struggling with resentment or, or what have you, I will find a meditation on YouTube that focuses exactly on that. Uh, and uh, I'll sort of like sort of tailor it to whatever I'm feeling that day. How long did you spend with the Sam Harris app? Uh, about a week. And then I ran out of the trial period. And now like I'm on the fence if I should buy it. And I think I'm going to. You know what's funny? There's another app called 10% Better that's also a really great meditation app by a guy named Dan Harris. They're not brothers, though I've seen them on, I think on a podcast together as guests because they're two like meditation authorities. But yeah, Dan Harris has the 10% Better app, which is also really, really good. I'll check it out. I'm going to check it out after this. Yeah, you might want to check out that trial too. You know what I did a year ago that freaked me the fuck out for about five minutes was uh, I did an isolation tank. Oh, freaked you out. How? I did it just on a whim. I was like, this sounds really interesting. Cool. I'm going to try it. And uh, I I laid down and total silence, 
the water is the same temperature as your blood, so you don't even feel the water. Salt water, so you're floating, leaving you completely devoid of, of any sensation. And it's dark, so you can't see anything. And it's such a weird, eerie feeling, man. Like, I, I freaked out. I, I almost wanted to hit the button. They had a button there for an emergency. <laughs> like, I was in a bad place for a couple minutes there because uh, all the negativity rushes back to you. You know, everything just sort of hits you all at once. Um, or it hit me all at once. And as soon as I told myself... Was it like claustrophobia or something? No, because in that moment, I, I'm not even aware of the physical space I'm surrounded by. It's just not having anything to tether yourself to, you know? Like, you, you're so used to, 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 to latching onto a sound or latching onto a sight or, uh, or a, like a touch, like a physical touch, that when you have all of it stripped away, literally simultaneously, it was very jarring. It, it was a revelation for me. Like, I, I walked out of there just having that sort of reset feeling that I was describing earlier, this... Um, this feeling of starting from zero, that that was super helpful. And, I, and I've been meaning to do it again, but uh, for anybody out there listening, I really recommend it if, if there's one in your town or whatever. I know that's not the most common thing. It's not like you can just find one next to a grocery store or anything like that. But if you know of one, it's a, it's a pretty different, unique experience that uh, I think everybody should try at least once. So you just finished saying what a bad time it was and now you're recommending it. Yes. Yes. So let's, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> I see enough of those in my dreams. Um, but no, when I'm, what, what I'm referring to is this, the first couple minutes were alarming, were, were, were anxiety inducing. Not what you were expecting, probably. Not what I was expecting at all. And I was left with nothing to anchor myself to. But what came after was this sense of, of comfort with not having control over things. Got it. And, and this sense of comfort with... Uh, with being left alone in your thoughts, which I think a lot of us are much less comfortable with than we even realize, with being alone with our thoughts and and viewing our thoughts as something that don't define us, as as you know from maybe your your mindfulness meditations, like the the idea of seeing your thoughts as these things that sort of pass you by, these little bubbles that mm -hmm. that that appear uh, intermittently in your consciousness. Uh, seeing your thoughts that way. And in that experience, I almost saw my thoughts as that way. I know we're getting a little bit into like DMT, like, whoa, man, kind of talk, but <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> but, but being able to um, be comfortable with, with silence and, and not having those sensations and having, having to be alone with your thoughts it is, was such a foreign experience for me, but something that I, I apply to life still every day now through through meditation. I feel like if you like meditation, if you're interested in that kind of thing, like AL, I, I know you would probably like it if you, uh, if, if you do meditate, you know? Very curious about it, actually. Yeah. It's cheap. I, th I think they're cheap now. Like uh, they used to be like hundreds of dollars to, to go to one, but uh, I think they've reduced prices on them. Um, so I think mine was like 50 or 60 bucks. So definitely worth a try. Yeah, totally. Well, how did you calm yourself down? That's more what I'm interested in. The breathing, breathing, and this is going to be okay. Using, using, you know, rational thinking, like it's okay. Like I'm just here. Am I actually in danger? Yeah. That, those are the kinds of things I ask myself. <laughs> right. Or like, or is there going to be a power outage and this door is going to electronically close and they're going to forget that I'm here and I will run out of oxygen in this tank. Stuff like that. Just dispelling those kinds of ludicrous thoughts. You know, that helps too. 
different topic, but uh, so I want to talk about some of the stuff that you discussed with um, with Ben. Actually, you're saying that like with periphery, you're describing it like every individual member prepares as much as possible. Misha kind of talked about this too, and you guys kind of have like a roundtable session where you mix and match riffs to complete songs. Do you feel like uh, part of the challenge is to take people's ideas with different initial visions and somehow make them cohesive? Yeah. I mean, if you look at writing on our own as pre-production, we do literally the years of, of pre-production before one of these roundtable writing sessions. And, you know, when, when a periphery record begins, when the, when the process begins, it officially starts when we all get into a room and start sort of laying all these ideas that were in develop, independently developed together on a table, figurative table, and, uh, and seeing what catches all of our interests and what doesn't. And, uh, and the real fun begins by years. You mean like actual years worth of pre-pro? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. just like Misha's always writing. I'm always writing. Jake's always writing. Spencer's too. I mean, just it goes on and on and on. We're we're always, always cultivating ideas independently. Um, the real fun begins when we put these ideas together. We start to stick a Jake riff against a Misha riff or my riff with a Jake riff. The idea is then to start writing based off of that voice we've just established, you know, like this weird, this, this weird melding of voices. And then we try and and build a song off of that. And that's when we start passing a guitar, a a guitar around a room. It's like, let's see what Jake's got. Let's see what Misha's got. Should we take a couple hours off and see if we can write riffs? Like maybe I'll, I'll be in a different room. um, seeing if I can write a riff that complements, you know, this pre-chorus that we left it at. And, uh, and we'll see if Misha can take off and, and write a chorus section. And, uh, yeah, that's when the true sort of periphery writing begins, in my opinion. You mentioned that one of your favorite parts of the process is when someone has an idea, like, say, six-string drop C tuning, for example. And there's not enough ideas to complete the song, so you'll all pass the guitar around and figure out the song together. Can you think of like any examples that have songs that have spawned from this or song sections have spawned from that oh man i mean i want to say most of our songs i mean i I could be wrong about this because uh so they all get to this point where like the guitar starts being passed around oh yeah yeah oh yeah pretty much every single one of our songs happens that way like it'll start with whether it's one riff three riffs that one person comes up with or 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 whatever half a song uh it always reaches this point where we're like okay there's two minutes of solid ideas here how are we going to flesh this out? The guitar always ends up getting passed around at some point to to finish the rest of the song. I mean, I I, I can't I can think of maybe one or two songs that haven't been that way, uh, especially in the older Periphery catalog. You know, like back when Periphery was Misha's um, vehicle uh, for for his studio uh, project. You know, back when it was like basically Bulb 2.0 for Periphery One. It started on Periphery Two, where we started taking this approach of of true collaboration. Do you ha- find that you have to approach, like, say, the two years worth of pre-pro that you did on your own in a sort of detached way? Like, how far do you let yourself go knowing that when you get 
to the round table scenario with them that shit's going to get chopped up, thrown out, like who the hell knows what's going to happen. Does that cause you to have to kind of like maybe not go all the way with your writing when you're on your own? No. In fact, I would say that there's this, this level of, um, this level of surrender almost that comes in, in, in the process. Like you give it 110% when you're writing on your own. You are not pulling any punches. You know, you're giving mm-hmm. it everything you have. At the same time, you have this realization that maybe 90, 90% of my ideas won't make it, but it just has to be that way because you're in a band. This is not one single person's project. And I know it's something that every single person in the band has had to acclimate to, um, which is why, I mean, maybe Misha touched on it, but it's why we've endured growing pains over the years. You know, you look, you look back at Periphery 2 or Juggernaut or some of our previous records when we were still learning how to come to grips with the reality of uh, a true collaboration is that there, there was a lot of discomfort with that idea. Like, why am I going to try so hard when I could just have most of it cut? You know, and it's not a natural thing to be okay with. So, by the way, Misha did talk about it. We had a very interesting conversation about it. So that's actually why I'm curious about your perspective too. He thought he actually thought it would be interesting to have you come on and talk about it too, just because uh, it's such an interesting conversation. And I think it's so important for anybody who's trying to do a band or really any creative project that involves other people, they need to learn how to do this, in my opinion, in order for the project to survive. Like you have to be able, you have to be able to do this, but you're right. It does not come naturally to be cool with killing ideas that are your heart and soul. You have to, you have to learn how to do that. Right. Right. And it also depends greatly on like, what the nature of the band or project is. You know, if, if I'm Devin Townsend and this is my Devin Townsend project, like why would I ever adapt any semblance of that way of thinking, you know? And he doesn't. We just had him on Nail the Mix. So I just did like, I just did an eight hour stream with him like five days ago or something. And so that dude is 100,000% that dude and that dude only. And it's great. I love him. It's great. I love him. He's one of my heroes, man. I love that. But yeah, I mean, like when it, when it comes to building these ideas on your own and, you know, John full well knows this is like, you have to be fully, fully, fully committed on board. And it's taken, it, it did take me a long time to become okay with that. Like, okay, people could shit all over this and it's not going to make it. Okay. Time to time to move on, and time to be the 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 bigger, better person for the greater good of the band, um, because it is a band. It's not my project. It's not Jake's project. It's not Spencer's. It's not Misha's or Matt's. It's 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 a band, and I, I think part of the reaction to to this effect is all of us going and having our cake and eating it too by having side projects. Which is why I love the environment that that Haunted Shores brings, and it's why you know each one of us has our own sort of free for all on the side, where there are basically no rules, you know. Okay, so when you're talking about the side projects, the free for alls, is it stuff that got cut, or like when something gets cut, is it dead to you, or do you think to yourself, well, it didn't work for this, I'm gonna recycle it there, or use it, not recycle it, but 
I'm going to put it there. Or do you just start from scratch? Like if an idea is dead, it's dead. Find another one. More often than not, start from scratch. Like there haven't really been ideas that didn't work for Periphery that, that were then repurposed for Haunted Shores. I just don't think that works because Haunted Shores has, just, has such a distinctly different voice than Periphery. Very different. But okay. So for example, I'm not sure if Monuments or has this or, or if uh, you have this, John, or, or if you have this too, ALM, but we have a Dropbox that is just chock full of deceased song ideas, you know, like like ideas that we forgot we had written at three in the morning in 2012. You know, things yes. like just with just with really obscure song titles and you know things that I haven't heard in seven or eight or nine years um that just sit there. And every once in a while they will be unearthed by Spencer late at night. Or like Misha will find one of them and be like, yo, you guys remember this? This was cool. Why didn't we like this seven years ago? Like this is actually pretty sick. And then they'll get repurposed and then we'll take a different run at it. And that's how a lot of our other songs have have sort of come to fruition is they'll sit in this, um, what I call it, like a riff graveyard or a song graveyard. And then every once in a while we'll dig back into it and see if it if it makes any more sense now, if it sounds better to any of our ears now. And sometimes they won't. Sometimes they will have this magical effect. Be like, wow, this actually sounds cool. So with the, I feel like with um, riffs that you don't like in the moment, or it's almost, I almost feel like it doesn't even matter if you like it or not in the moment, because uh, your perception in the moment is so weird. Like it's so weird. It's so hard to have real perspective on anything you're doing musically right there in the moment i feel like the most accurate way to know is to give it a little bit of distance and approach it cold like that goes with mixing too like mix for a yeah the brain gets desensitized to what's going on around it same way that like if you're in a room and uh something smells terrible if you're in there long enough, you're not going to smell it anymore. But if you walk in there for the first time, you're like, holy fuck. Well, it's a, it's a similar sort of thing. I mean, if you're hearing a mix for five hours straight, you'll get used to its problems. You go to listen to it the next morning, and you're like, holy shit, that hi-hat is stupid. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I feel like it's a, sim- it's a similar thing sometimes with writing. Like, You might hate something that's badass just because your brain was in a weird spot. You're sick of hearing it. Like you were expecting to write something else. Like who knows? Right. Or because your ears are shot. It's the end of the writing. It's the end of the writing session. You're just like, oh man, can we just, can we just get this over with? You're tired. You're hungry. Yeah. There's a million variables. Like you said. Yeah. But yeah, just giving that perspective and do it. I mean, in this case, and what we were just talking about years of perspective, which you know, your whole life changes. Yeah. Everything changes. And then you come back to it with a fresh set of ears, you know, almost a decade later, just, you never know what you could, you you might as well be hearing it for the first time, really. That's interesting. Like, so how often does something from 2012 work its way into something new? Oh man. I mean, on the last periphery record, we had that section from the, the focus hour, which was old, like we were looking for like some kind of big, dark, groovy section in that song reptile. And uh, we're just like, man, something just like really oppressive and controversial needs to happen right here. Just like fucking mean, you know, like something really angry needs to occur at this moment. And we were having trouble 
sort of establishing that part. And then I forget who, I, I don't know if it was if it was even Misha, maybe it was me or Jake. It was just like, no, this is the same tempo as focus hour. And we, you've never used focus hour for anything. And focus hour was this uh, random bulb demo that he had written, I want to say in like 2006 or 2007. And then we just stuck it there and it was perfect. And it's those kinds of just like happy random accidents that, uh, that can just bless you, you know, in, in, in ways that, uh, that are hard to, uh, to, uh, to emphasize. That seems tough. Remembering how to play riffs from that long ago. If you didn't write them down. Yeah. No, no, not, none of none of us ever wrote anything down, but, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things where, well, that riff is a, is a different beast because it was just all open chugs. It just has a really cool rhythmic aspect to it. But yeah, it's just like, you got to sit down with it and be like, oh, what did I play there? Damn, is that what I played? That kind of thing. There is no muscle memory with those ideas. No. Yeah. I think the muscle memory takes place over a period of weeks and months, not over a period of hours. So even if you tried to nail this riff you were writing, you know, 50 times, you've nailed it that 50th time or whatever, and well enough to piece it together and then moved on with your life. Seven years went by. There's no muscle memory. There's no muscle memory for you to go back to. Yeah. Nothing at all. With, uh, with, with a lot of peripheries and, and Haunted Shore stuff too, it's like so many of the riffs are Frankensteined, you know? It's like they'll, they'll be written with a click like like a bar or two at a time and that's not muscle memory that's 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 just no it's not yeah it's it's like some kind of freak um like you're patching something together uh and that's this is not conducive to remembering a riff you're just trying to compose a part it's a good thing to kind of get scared into stepping it up oh yeah yeah it's happened to me a few times in different scenarios where i get a little dose of reality of uh, where the standards actually are versus maybe where I thought they may have been. <laughs> and it's always been like a jolt, like you feel it and it does stick with you. And, uh, and because if you thought the standards were in one spot and then you get a, you get a cold dose of reality and they're higher than you had anticipated, then uh, it's going to rearrange your head a little bit, but that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. Yeah, I think the important thing is how you react to that. Like you could recoil Absolutely. and go hide and you know, bury your whole your your bury your head in a hole in the ground, or you could, in my case, recoil, <laughs> but then <laughs> but then be like, okay, what do I do about this? Uh and it, that's something I, I feel as well to this day. I feel I feel intimidated every day by things that are happening, like things that I'm working on, things that I'm a part of, you know. But I, I think that level of, of examination and awareness is healthy to a degree, as long as you don't let it conquer you. Has that ever happened to you guys on tour where you're on tour, you're at a festival, you're playing after somebody or something, and and they fucking annihilate. And it's like, oh, we're gonna have to be better than this. Yeah. I think it's a similar sort of feeling. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unreal. Like there was one tour we did where, you know, like Sixth never had toured the US before. So we asked them to come tour with us, even though like if it wasn't for Sixth, Periphery wouldn't be a band, you know? So for us, they're one of the founding fathers of this type of music. And when it came to asking them if they'd be on our US tour, the idea of having them open for us is just like, what? Like, stop. Like, this is wrong. It just feels wrong. It is objectively wrong and it's stupid. <laughs> but you know, having to play after them every night was just like, man, 
put some hair on your nuts. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say chest, but we can say nuts too. Uh, <laughs> Imagine what it must have been like to be the band that played after Slipknot on that first Ozfest they did. I heard, I heard that because I heard they played early in the day because they weren't, uh, they weren't big yet. Yeah. But that's right when they were exploding. And uh, from what I heard, uh, there were a few bands that broke up because of that tour <laughs> that they had to play after Slipknot and were just like, this is pointless. <laughs> Fuck it. Game over. I, I remember, I don't know what year this was, but when Disturbed and Slipknot co-headlined Mayhem and it, they had this big public battle about it, but somehow it got worked out that Slipknot was closing. And I've always thought that that was not an actual battle that, uh, mm. it was made to look like a battle, but that in reality, uh, the dudes and disturbed are smart. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously they're smart. They've been huge forever. Of course yeah. they're smart. Oh yeah. I'm sure that they decided, and I'm just, I'm just inventing shit here. Cause I have no idea, but in my mind, that was a fake feud so that no band lost like any you know of their uh prize fighter status but that disturbed was probably like you play last <laughs> have fun <laughs> i think that that's a pretty well put together conspiracy theory I, I i couldn't agree more i'm not much of a conspiracy theorist but that one makes sense to me because uh who the fuck would want to play after slipknot we've got some questions here from listeners it's cool if we ask you some yeah absolutely not all right. Fuck you guys. You asked them for no reason. This one here is from Periphery Sucks 2007. <laughs> actually, actually, they're pretty good questions. So, um, Jonathan Davies, not from Corn. Damn it. Yeah. Every time I see someone named Jonathan Davis or Davies, I'm like, is it him? No. <laughs> is it, it him? never? It never is. <laughs> never is. Uh, You've stated before that you don't know theory. So how the hell do you come up with those beautiful open chords? Just from uh, spending a lot of time with the instrument, really, and and building chords really deliberately and, and not just slamming my fingers down on the fretboard and seeing how it sounds. Uh, it, it's very methodically and patiently. You know, I'll find a root note and I'll find the second voicing in the chord uh, very intentionally. Uh, intentionally they'll find the third voicing in the chord with the same approach and uh and that's typically how it goes it's it sounds very mundane and time consuming because it is uh but yeah that's just that's just the way i've always gone about it i like big chords in metal uh, i always have and um yeah w without using theory as a sort of um guiding guiding tool for that. Um, it's really the only way I've ever learned. Sometimes I'll get lucky and I'll just be like, oh, what does this sound like? And I'll throw some random shape down or I'll shift some things around in a chord. Um, yeah, it's always just about what sounds best. You know, all the dudes who know theory, who are good writers, say the same exact thing. They're not typically using theory to write beautiful open chords. They're writing what sounds best. They just happen to know the theoretical name for it and can write it down on a chart or whatever, but when they're writing, they're not using the theory so much. They're going by what they think sounds cool. Like you still know what the sound is that you're going for, right? Like you know what things sound like on the fretboard. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's that I would almost call my own version of theory, just just by knowing what things are going to sound like if I sh- if I shift my fingers to a certain position, and that kind of thing just comes from experience, and 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 time, just doing it over and over and over and over and over again. Chris Johns says, "Do you ever get anxiety that you're out of ideas, and if so, how do you deal with it?" Yeah, yeah, I definitely get that. I get it quite frequently, uh, and, and I guess the number one way I deal with it is. It's kind of like what we were hitting at earlier. It's just getting space, getting perspective, walking away from it and not not putting all my eggs in that basket. Like, okay, I'm tapped. Let me step away and go for a walk, play a video game, meditate, uh, do whatever I can. And maybe if it doesn't mean, if it means I don't touch the guitar for a day or two, that's fine. It's just getting a little bit of perspective to, to realize that it's not all about now. Don't make these sweeping generalizations about yourself based on one low moment, you know? So, and it also helps being in a band full of dudes who I can trust to bring their A game. Like I know if I'm tapped, if I'm in a big rut, I know that chances are Jake's not in that rut, Misha's not in that rut, nor are Spencer and Matt. So, so yeah, that, that also helps. I'm, I'm very lucky from that standpoint. Let's see here. Isaiah Hubert saying, you have such a unique and recognizable style, especially when you solo. Miles Davis said, sometimes you have to play a long time to be able to play like yourself. Have you put forth effort into quote unquote playing like yourself? And how will you coach another player into finding their own unique sound? Mm, That's a good question. Uh, That's one I'm still trying to figure out for myself because I've spent so many years, you know, sort of trying to capture certain elements of players that I admire. You know, like we were talking about Devin Townsend earlier. Like I always just wanted to write music that sounded like Strappy Young Lad City or Alien, you know? Like those those two records were like my holy grail for like modern heavy metal. And then I discovered like Chaos Fear and everything and that changed a little bit. But <laughs> yes. since those days though, it's almost this deliberate attempt to just to just have fun with the instrument. And in having fun with it, I will involuntarily start to quote unquote play like myself. When I'm just trying to have fun with it, not trying to check boxes or put notches on my belt, like, oh, does this section have blasts like All Hail the New Flesh does, or or whatever. Like, uh, the, the the further I get away from that, the the closer I get to presumably what this guy's talking about in, in his question is uh, is is developing my own style. And um, yeah, in, in my mind, like, I can't even identify my own style. I'm just. It's more this mindset of just. Just trying to have fun with it. Does this does this music make me smile? Does this part make me happy? Am I satisfied from what I'm doing right now? And if I am, chances are it's just an objectively good thing for the music. You know, I have this a thought on this, man. I've thought about this a lot. And uh, I really think that you don't need to try to develop your own style because you already are yourself, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you're... Er, you, I mean, I don't, I don't mean this like in a, oh, you're a special snowflake kind of thing, but like you already are, you're already you, right? You're already unique. So your personality is your personality. Yeah. Like your, your tastes are your tastes. Yeah. Like that, that shit's there. So as long as you work on getting better at actually just playing the damn thing, your tastes are going to come through because that's who's playing the guitar. Right. So I don't think people need to try to develop their personality. Yeah. Dude, so I don't know. Are you a Mr. Bungle fan at all? Yes, I love Mr. Bungle, yeah. Okay, so, you know, there was Mr. Bungle, 
And then there's all the bands that came after Bungo that tried to do the Bungo thing, like include circus music or like be quirky or whatever. Like there was a bunch of bands that I'm not going to name them because I don't want to talk shit, but there were the Bungo clones and you could tell Mm -hmm. like you could tell that they were trying to be weird whereas bungle were just weird like weird and amazing you could hear it like it sounded contrived and i've I've always felt like that you can hear it in metal too when something is like contrived angry as opposed to like the first slipknot record or something that's exactly what i was going to say that first that's such a good example of that whether you love it or hate it the fucking anger is palpable oh it's real yeah great record you can't manufacture that. I mean, you can try to capture it, which I obviously, obviously effort had to go into trying to capture it, right? That's the producer's job. But I don't think that they had to try to be authentically feeling that way. That had to just be how they were feeling at that point in time. Right. So Kieran Giles says, Mark, your music has inspired me since 2010. You changed the face of modern metal, in my opinion. If you were to tell your younger self anything to accelerate and improve his guitar playing, what would it be? Anything to... Ex- quit now. <laughs> quit now. Just kidding. Get a job. <laughs> Don't do it. I would say there are no shortcuts. Do it. And by do it, I mean play guitar and write music or whatever it is you're trying to do with the instrument. Do it for love of doing it. Do it out of the passion you have for it. Don't do it because you're trying to make it. Don't do it because you're trying to make money to pay rent. That is something that I know a lot of musicians, uh, they fall into that trap because of life. Life circumstances make it so you have to go, you know, do a cover band or you got to take a residency gig or do something to where it pays the bills. But, and you know, I'm fortunate enough to where I'm at the level that I can pay the bills off of music now, but that's not why I got into it. And the reason I'm here, in my opinion, is not because I had that desire. My desire was simply to pick up the guitar every day and create music that I had fun creating. Um, that was, that's the only reason I sustained it for so long before good things started to happen. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, that attitude that prevailed over the years was really important. And just to, just to have realistic expectations, you know, like no, nobody owes you anything in this industry and chances are you're probably not going to get discovered and signed to a label magically or anything like that. You know, that's the stuff of Hollywood. Um, and it's so antiquated at this point, but you know, do it because you love, you love doing it and you don't know how to do anything else as much as you, uh, as much as you know how to do music. So, so yeah, do it for the right reasons. I feel like doing it. So doing it for the right reasons is as it sounds really like you hear that a lot and I agree with it, but I want to, I want to elaborate on it. Um, because I think that sometimes people think that it's like, what am I trying to say? Like that it's just like posy talk or something, but it's not, it's actually super practical Yeah. because in order to do this for real, you have to be way overcommitted. Like you have to put so much time and sacrifice into it that uh, if you're not doing it for the right reasons, there's no way you're going to put in the time necessary, the time, effort, especially when it gets hard. Uh, you're not going to do that, but other people will be doing that and you'll get passed by. Right. So for just purely practical reasons of the reasons of this is the only way you'll actually stick it out because you're going to need to stick it out for like a decade or more. Do it for the right reasons. 
Yeah. And, and if you're doing it for attention or if you're doing it for money or for girls or for drugs or whatever you're doing it for, all of those types of variables are fleeting and you don't control those variables. What you do have control over is your work ethic and your passion for doing what you do. Like that, you have ownership of those things. Uh, all the other things, uh, you're sort of left handcuffed because those things go away pretty easily. And if you hit a rough patch where it feels like nobody cares about your music, you're going to be dragged down that hole. Whereas if you're doing it for, you know, what I call the right reasons for, for your own self-motivation, for your own passion, because you live and breathe it, nothing can fuck with that. Nothing, you know, not, not even, you know, the worst tragedy in your life, not even the worst depression or, or, or series of panic attacks or going broke. Like I've, I've, I've been through all that stuff and it doesn't affect my desire to do what I do. So I'm saying that, you know, from experience. And Mark, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Nice to finally meet you, at least electronically. Likewise, man. Thank you guys for having me. This was a, this is an absolute blast. 